Good morning, church. We are going to be reading John 11:55 through 12:11. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, from whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Pray with me. Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity to gather together as a church and um, have fellowship and to learn from our elders, Lord. Um, I pray for Josh that you would just speak through him, and um, I pray that our hearts would be open to receive the word that you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. All right little bit of EQ work left? No. We didn't test the mic uh, early enough today, and that's my fault. So if it sounds weird, uh, Liz is going to dial it in uh, here as we go. So thank you, Michelle, for uh, reading this text for us today. Um, yeah, John, the end of John 11 into chapter 12. Uh, and as we get started today, I uh, just want to bring your, to your attention, I am not the fastest or most dynamic speaker, um, but I have been told that if you listen on the podcast and double the speed, uh, it's quite exciting. So if that's what you're looking for, just be patient here for the next 30 minutes or so uh, and pick up the podcast later today. Um, so as we start here, we are not only roughly in the middle of the book of John. Um, there's 21 chapters in the book of John, if you're not familiar. Uh, and today we start chapter 12. Uh, but this chapter is, is regarded as the bridge between two major, the two major sections of the book of John. Uh, one commentary I read had said that this chapter is like the saddle between two mountain peaks uh, that allow, allow climbers the opportunity to move from one peak to the next. Um, so similarly, chapter 12 functions as the linking saddle, if you will, that contains significant themes from what's been highlighted 
previously and what is yet to come in the book of John. The rest of the book of John is actually um, interesting. The, the rest of the book covers the last week of Jesus' life. So yes, half of the total content of John's gospel covers the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, and the passage in, in chapter 11 that Robert Marshall had preached last week um, included an unintentional prophecy by the Jewish high priest of the time saying that it would be better for one man to die for the people than for the nation to perish. This is a pivotal turning point in the book of John. It's refining our focus on the mission and the purpose of Jesus on earth. It was all about substitutionary atonement. It was all about the giving of Jesus' life, his death for the world, so that we might, so that he might bring all people to himself. So this is where we step into today, the critical final week of Jesus' life. So just a couple of brief stories here. I don't know why, and maybe I'm the only person uh, on earth who's like this, uh, but anytime someone is smoking a cigar pipe or even a cigarette, um, I love the smell. I confess, I love the smell. And... Most of you are probably like, what's wrong with this guy? Um, and uh, I don't even smoke other than maybe a celebratory pipe every few years. Um, but if you're walking with me on the street, you might see me step into um, <laughs> someone else's secondhand smoke, which sounds really weird. Um, but just the aroma of it is, is, uh, is pleasing to me. And I, I told this to someone recently, and I just got the most confused, unbelieving stare back. Um, and I know that that's, that's not probably your story, but to some people, tobacco smells pretty terrible. Um, to me, it, it smells good. Um, so it's probably good that I'm not a smoker. Um, another story... Uh, a number of years ago, I was in China with a friend, um, and we were walking down just a normal street, um, and I had heard about stinky tofu before, um, but I'd never encountered it firsthand. And as we're walking down this street, I catch this whiff of something not so great to me. Um, to me, it was kind of like the smell of sewer water. Um, but as we continued walking, I realized that it was coming from this food cart that we walked right by and confirmed that uh, it was the legendary stinky tofu. Um, and so I know uh, some people love uh, fermented tofu, but for me, not so much. Today's passage highlights a particular aroma it's one that inherently was very likely extremely wonderful. But because of the context and the amount of its use, to some, that aroma was received in utter disgust. But to some, it was received as beautiful worship. It brings to my mind what the Apostle Paul spoke of in 2 Corinthians 2, 14-16. 
But thanks be to God who always, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Now let's provide a little bit more context to this passage in John 12. In some places in the Gospels, we, we see Jesus consciously avoiding danger. In fact, just before this story of Mary, we see that Jesus had temporarily vacated the place of danger, but in his awareness of those wanting to arrest and kill him, he actually consciously and intentionally stepped back into the place of danger. He does so at this point in time because he realizes that it is his time. He knows that the Passover is about to occur and he wasn't going to miss this Passover because this would become the ultimate Passover for all time. The context, the setting, the atmosphere just before uh, this passage, if we can just put ourselves in the shoes of those in this story, is the death of someone that you love dearly. And then that situation turns into that person who had died walking out of the grave. It's, for me, even very difficult to even imagine what that could possibly be like. So this dinner that we read of, that Mary and Martha are, are hosting, it might not be at their house, which is probably the way that we would think of it, because they might be just trying to keep everyone safe for the moment. They were only a couple miles from Jerusalem, where lots of religious and political fanatics had one intention, and that was to arrest and kill Jesus. This is not a normal dinner. When your good friend recently raised your family member, your beloved family member from the dead, you don't, you don't cater in Cafe Rio or, or Olive Garden. This is not a normal dinner. This is more like homemade lobster bisque and sourdough bread cooked by Amber Bindle. It's one of my favorite meals I've had. This is the kind of circumstance that you pop open the $150 limited edition whiskey so that everyone can share a taste. This is likely an intentional, special, joyful, wonderful celebration to honor Jesus for what he has recently done for the life of Lazarus. Everyone takes their place at the meal. Lazarus reclining and enjoying this very special moment with his friend Jesus. Martha, as always, willing and able to serve. And Mary stands ready to offer an incredible gift. Now let's just lay out a few more facts in the story. This bottle of ointment was probably close to about 12 ounces of perfume. So, not significant, but for perfume, that's a lot. And the value of it Today, we would estimate possibly around $50,000. A $50,000 
bottle of perfume. So if Mary and Martha or their family is not extremely rich, which they were likely not, the value of this perfume could easily be even 80-90% of the family's net worth. This could easily be the whole family's emergency fund. Mary had used so much perfume that the house was filled with the fragrance. And talking about touching people's feet, I don't know of a time when it is appropriate or normal or nice to touch people's feet other than in a, uh, why am I forgetting the name? When you get a massage on your feet. Yeah, pedicure. Is that what it is? Okay. I've had one. I've had one. Uh, It was painful. Um, It was very painful, actually. Um, And then regarding the hair of Mary, I mean, things change from culture to culture, generation to generation, time to time. In this context, in this culture, um, this would be kind of like what we're seeing in the news with the country of Iran, where some women are refusing to wear their, their head covering. Um, letting her hair down would be shocking, even scandalous. It would certainly feel like this situation was embarrassing. And that might be understating it. Now, in many ways, this passage is not complicated. Really, the the question is, do you identify more with Judas or do you identify more with Jesus? Do you see and value Jesus the way Judas does or the way Mary does? This passage, this story is meant to highlight the gap, and sometimes it can be an incredible gap between the value of Jesus in the eyes of someone who believes and follows him compared to the value of Jesus in the eyes of his betrayer. Many of you know, uh, if, if, you're, if you know who Tim Keller is, uh, you probably know that he passed away, um, sadly, uh, from cancer here just about a week ago. And he taught this passage a few different times over his lifetime. And uh, he said this, Ultimately, we are pressed with the reality of whether we sell Jesus or whether we sell out to Jesus, whether we use Jesus or make ourselves available to be used by him. So let's spend a little bit of time looking at Judas' heart. Does anyone else like spy movies? I love spy movies. Uh, Recently, I watched, uh, again, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy. Um, My wife does not like these movies, so I usually look for occasions when she's busy or not around, and and I'll watch one of these. Um, But this scene in the book of John is, is one of the final days of Jesus' life. And at this point, Judas has been won over by the enemy, and he's, he's now acting kind of like the mole or the double agent, the betrayer. 
He's on that path. And it's not obvious yet to everyone, even to the other 11 disciples, as we'll see just a few days later. Um, But it will be obvious here in just a few days. And personally, I've been reading through Matthew's gospel recently. And as I thought about this passage in the book of John, there are so many texts that I'm coming across in the book of Matthew that I felt were hitting home this story of Mary and Judas. And one of them is Matthew 15, where it says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. These are the words of Jesus. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. This story highlights Judas' greed. The passage literally calls him a thief, stealing from the ministry of Jesus. And greed makes us stupid. Greed kills. And greed, as Jesus said, comes out of the heart. Jesus said that what is present in the heart, what is true of the heart, what is the condition of the heart, reveals and presents itself in our words and in our actions. Greed is also agnostic as to the wealth of the person. We more often see examples of the anxieties and the pains and the loose living of the rich person brought on by their own greed. Wouldn't necessarily encourage anyone to watch the show Billions, but that seems to be the theme of that show. And there's many others like it. Or maybe the example we see in the news during the crash of 2008 of a hedge fund manager who decides, who, who's lost everything financially and who decides it's better to jump off of a tall building than to deal with that loss. This is what greed can lead us to. But the person who is poor can just as easily be afflicted with the same heart. It's not limited to the rich. I recently read a story of a pastor who said a turning point in his own faith was when he visited a friend who was a missionary in Africa, and he was living in a small mud hut among some poor Africans. And this pastor asked his missionary friend, he said, what is the greatest spiritual challenge that you find among this group of poor? And the response was materialism. Greed, even among the hearts of the poor, Judas' heart was full of greed, and he was willing to use the poor as his cover, or as a cover, for his envy. Judas didn't truly care about the poor. He was just using the poor to his own advantage. The main point in this text is not about the poor. The issue here in this text is not how the poor are treated. Jesus cared about the poor. Jesus was poor himself. Jesus spent time with the poor. He fed the poor. He healed the poor. He cared for the poor. And that was a major theme of Jesus' life. And it continues or should continue with the church that Jesus started. 
And it's not only interesting to me, but it's important, I think, that Jesus says to Judas, you will always have the poor with you. He is saying, what Jesus is saying is that until all things are made new, until he returns and sets everything right, there will always be the poor. And even that we should always look after the poor. The issue here at stake in this text is the valuation of the poor relative to the value of Jesus. So let's talk numbers for a minute. I love spreadsheets. I'm an accountant. I felt like it would be a good use of our time to talk numbers. Um, So here's a few. And I don't think this is just coincidence. I, I believe that the Spirit of God has orchestrated things in such a way in this text and in the Bible to to highlight things like this. First first number here is Jesus Jesus just received a one-time use of a gift worth around $50,000. Judas is disgusted with this gift and he settles for selling Jesus for about $5,000. However, Judas had recently witnessed Jesus essentially creating $50,000 out of thin air twice to feed the thousands that had come to listen to him. Isn't it ironic that the Old Testament includes examples and rules to give a tenth, and yet Judas in his in his greed in the darkness of his heart settled so badly that he took a tenth by selling Jesus. Isn't it ironic that Judas is upset about the use of a lavish gift worth $50,000 when he literally recently just participated in Jesus' miracle, basically creating $50,000 worth of food for thousands of people? Matthew 16 I think we have this one on the screen too. If anyone, this is Jesus' words again, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Talk about bad valuations. Judas is about to act out the part of another story in Matthew 18. He's about to act out this part of this servant. The story goes a little bit like this. A king who wanted to settle the debt, settle the accounts uh, of his servants. And one servant owed him such an incredible amount. And I'm estimating about $10 billion. Can you imagine owing a king, $10 billion. And this man, this servant goes, he gets this incredible debt forgiven of him by the king. And he turns around and he starts choking another servant who owes him $10,000. I would include dozens of other examples here. 
just because Jesus talked about money so much, it's actually one of the things that he talked about most. But I'll let it rest there for, for a minute. Judas was living out the life of a fraud. The greed had poisoned his heart to the point where he was not just making bad financial decisions. He would eventually betray everyone around him. Judas had spent years with Jesus. He had seen many miracles. He was one of the closest people to Jesus, invited by Jesus into that inner circle of 12 disciples. But yet his heart was so poisoned that he would trade Jesus for a tenth of what someone else thought it was worth giving to Jesus. Judas lacked the ability to see the value of what was right in front of him. He lacks the ability to put things in proportion. Because his heart would, was dark, he could not keep things in proper perspective. I was recently talking with someone who years prior had tried to make a career playing soccer. And he was almost good enough to make it onto the U.S. national team, but he ended up playing professionally for a time in his home country in Latin America. He told me that in in that country, the style of play was so dirty that coaches would train you on how to step on other people without the referees noticing or sensing foul play. And he said that guys would even hide little sharp sewing needles in their shoes so that they could pull them out at an opportune time and literally stab their opponents if they had gotten close. He said that when you played poorly or your team played poorly, there was even a risk that gangs in your home city might try to murder you. When our hearts as human beings are darkened by sin, we we completely lose sense of perspective on the important things in life. We fail to grasp what is truly valuable, let alone truly valuing what is actually valuable. Maybe set aside professional sports for a second. Let's, Let's talk about youth sports. And how even that can capture our heart's desires and cause lots of stress. And I seem to forget this every year, but um, at the end of May, each year, the various soccer clubs in Utah hold tryouts where they decide on their teams for all the age groups for the coming year. And it, it sneaks up on me. I forget that this for some reason, somehow ends up being the most stressful week of the year as a parent. Watching how well your kid does at tryouts, getting angry if they're not performing well, getting angry because you told them they need to play offense when they go to tryouts and then you show up at the tryouts and they're playing defense. The stress of finding out who made which team who, who's on each team in comparison to other teams. Even smaller things in life like this can even become all-consuming because what we really want 
is for everyone else to think well of us because our kid's the best. Or we want our kid's success more than anything else to the point where it distorts our view of everything else. And this is just one example. And it's not that these things don't matter, but where do things fit in perspective and proportion to the rest of life, to what is truly important and truly valuable in life? Let's all remember where the life of Judas went after this point. His heart was dark, and his fanatic, religious, and political devotion was about to ruin his life. His greed was literally suicidal. Jesus said that the love of money and the desire for riches will ruin your life. Paul said that by craving money, you will experience many sorrows in life. Love of money, the desire to be rich, leads to death. Jesus said it, Paul said it, and Judas proved it. Let's talk about Mary. Mary's heart, the worth of Christ. This story is one of those that appears in all four Gospels which helps confirm its significance to the overall story of Christ. In Matthew, it says that wherever the gospel is preached in the world, what Mary has done in this story here will also be told. Thinking back again to this story, what would it have been like to go through the experience of a close family member dying, someone you love dearly, and you literally bury that person, put them in the grave, And then several days later, they are resurrected from the dead. What would a response that included wonder, gratitude, and incredible joy look like? What we step into here in chapter 12 in the story of Mary is primarily the overflow of the worship of Mary and Martha. Not only that, but Mary seemed to some extent understand the context and the impending death of Christ. In the book of John, we are continuing to unfold the fullness of the gospel. And in contrast to Judas, Mary here grasps something of the incredible significance of the time, the significance of the moment, the significance of this man, and she is just overflowing in her love for Christ and worship of Christ. The fact that Mary let down her hair and particularly used it to anoint and wash the feet of Jesus with this perfume easily would have been perceived as weird, inappropriate, and just utterly disconnected from reality. But she is the one who rightly values Jesus and grasps the significance of the moment. How does she get to this point? How does she get this way? She's been with Jesus. She's she's learned from him. And she radiates his worth. 
and she carries the aroma of, of Christ with her. And now she is known for her devotion to him. John Piper said this, It is a beautiful thing when the worth of Jesus and the love of his followers match. When the value of his perfections and the intensity of our affections correspond. One commentary I read said that this dinner is not to be understood as merely some nice act of honoring the Lord, but as a tremendous demonstration of commitment to him. What is commitment? Commitment is to limit the options. It's to give up the alternatives. To bind yourself to a single option. It's even to be vulnerable in that single option. Jesus cannot be truly known without commitment. So where does this commitment come from? Again, as Tim Keller noted, it came from Mary's humility and her boldness. So let's spend a minute there. At the risk of great embarrassment, Mary abandoned her pride. Pride drains us of our true humanity. Mary dropped the idea that God owed her. She stopped trying to convince herself and to convince God that she was a person of worth. She stopped, she stopped trying to cut a deal with God. She humbled herself and came to God with the disposition of, God, let me be used by you, rather than seeking to use God for her purposes. In using her hair, Mary used the best that she had to offer in order to honor the lowliest of Jesus, if there is such a thing. She takes the most beautiful and clean thing that she has, turns it into a rag for the most ugly and dirty aspects of Jesus. Touching the feet of someone was regarded by Jews at that time as a very degrading, humiliating experience. It was normally reserved for slaves or servants where little honor was due. The fact that Mary was willing to do this in the presence of others communicates volumes about her elevated regard for Jesus. And in contrast to the values of today, people today might look at Mary in this story and say, well, she lacks self-worth. She's not a strong woman. She's not an assertive woman. But it's actually the opposite. She took the lead in this occasion to use an extremely valuable item to honor an extremely valuable person. This is not some unassertive, pushover, self-esteem-lacking woman. This is a woman who understands her true worth because she grasps the worth of Jesus. This is a woman who takes bold, courageous action to demonstrate what she values, even if it means humbling herself in an incredible way and serving others. In her humble act of service to demonstrate the worth of Jesus and to help prepare for his burial, she expresses great boldness before God 
and before anyone around her. Contrast this act with what we know of religion in general, where it's all about appearances, bolstering a proud confidence as you as long as you keep up your appearances, as long as your image is clean, as long as people don't see the problems behind the veneer and an attitude of expecting things from God. She lays it all aside in confident humility. She places proper value in the person of Christ. And as a result, she has a reasonable value of self in relation to God. So I want to move into a time of reflecting on these truths here today, a time of response, and I believe we have just a number of questions that came to my mind, and and we'll talk for just another minute here. Um, First question is, who do you sympathize with in this text? Do you find greed in your heart? It's probably more likely if we were in this house that we would probably mumble and whisper along with Judas because things probably would feel a little out of place. It it would be easier to agree with the supposed care for the poor, which we know wasn't true, and resist this extravagance rather than condone what looked like a radical act of devotion. If you find that your heart agrees more with the value of Judas, that you do not see Jesus as worthy of all your effort, all your time, all your money, all your life, and that you see Jesus as worth maybe a little bit, maybe a tenth, as long as you get something out of it, Please just acknowledge that fact and look at Jesus for a moment and say, and and ask yourself, is he worthy? Is he worthy? He says he is, and he wasn't being a narcissistic, egotistic lunatic. He is the only one who could ever say that he is worthy. Have you committed to Jesus? Mary's love in this text comes from knowing Jesus' love. Before she commits everything, she has seen Jesus commit everything. She grasps the fact that there's only one way to respond commensurately to Jesus, one way to respond to Jesus with proper proportion. It's actually a reasonable response for us to give everything utterly to him because he has given himself utterly for us. She doesn't yet fully realize that he will not only die but rise again and that his death would be for the sins of the world and would provide forgiveness for any person who would believe in him and that his resurrection would complete the conquering of our sin, of death itself, and of the devil. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. Jesus took the sin and punishment that we deserve and exchanged it for the righteousness and life that only he possessed and only he could have earned. He did it for us. He's the only one who could. And he completed it all 
in full, in total. Nothing contributed by us. And the only adequate, proper, proportional response that we can give is one of faith. To receive that gift, a response of commitment, a response of adoration, and a response of worship. I promise you, laying down your life before Christ is freedom. Believing in Christ is freedom. Serving Christ is a life of freedom. What do you need to put at the feet of Jesus? What do you need to surrender to God? Mary is literally literally placing everything at the feet of Jesus. There's almost nothing else of tangible value that she could possibly give. What do you need to say? What do I need to say? I have held on to this thing far too tightly. It is not mine. And I need to surrender ownership, use, worth at the feet of Jesus. How do you pursue the affections that Mary had and keep things in proper perspective? Do you intentionally give of your time, your effort, your money, your giftings in such a way that is consistent and commensurate with the value of Jesus? If you love Jesus, are you here learning and worshiping as often as you can? If you love Jesus, do you devote time to knowing God more and more through private prayer or corporate prayer and opening his word? If you love Jesus, do you love the people of God and seek to be around them, to learn from them and find ways to love and serve them? And as we wrap up here, I'd like to invite the band forward. Um, can also invite the, the prayer team forward uh, as we wrap up. And this final question, how much is Jesus worth to you? We all come in today from different places, different backgrounds. If you're a Christian, do you see, do other people, sorry, sense that you possess the most valuable, wonderful thing possible? Does your devotion to Jesus make sense to the world? It probably shouldn't. Is your faith simply respectable? If so, it should probably stir more responses and questions. We cannot adore, love, worship, or follow Jesus too intensely or too completely. Some may respond to the aroma of Christ as though they smell death, but for some, they will smell something sweet and lovely and worthy of surrender, a fragrance from life to life. We're about to sing a song about the depth of the love of God. In that song, we say, how deep? Because we can't begin to fathom how deep it is. We can't quantify his love. We can't quantify his worth.
And as we close today, I invite you to worship this Jesus. I invite you to come forward and pray with someone. They would love to pray for you. They would love to pray with you. They would love to talk with you about your questions. They would love to even just hear your heart wherever you're at today. We have ways to respond financially if the Lord is leading you in that way. There's giving boxes throughout the room. There's ways to give on our app and our website. But our primary desire here today is that you would find and know Jesus as your personal Savior. That your eyes, that our eyes would be opened to the surpassing worth of Jesus. And if you do not know him yet, we would love to engage you in that conversation. Our pastors and the prayer team here would be happy to to talk with you and pray with you. So we invite you to respond and worship with us. Would you pray with me? Oh God, help us to taste and see that you are good. Be to our senses the wonderful, pleasing aroma of life. Lord, now is the time to feast. Now is the time to find our greatest satisfaction. Heal our hearts. Soothe our souls. Move us from places of selfishness and greed to places of love and generosity. Move us from places of brokenness to places of healing and wholeness. Move us from places of pride to places of humility. Reveal your worth to us today. Reveal your glory to us today. Because Jesus, you are worthy. You are worthy of all blessing and honor and glory.